Good morning, Cornerstone. It's my privilege this morning to continue us in our journey, our series through the book of Acts. We took a week off last week, and now we're back in it. We're returning to Acts chapter 12 this morning, so please open your Bibles with me there. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, or you can pull out your phone and open your Bible app, a sign of the end times, indeed. The title of our sermon this morning is Delivered from Death to Life. And as we just sang, God has indeed broken the chains of death that were upon us. This morning we're talking about deliverance. What comes to mind when I say deliverance? I hope it's not the uh, 1972 movie with Burt Reynolds' deliverance. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Even though some of you were getting excited, I can see, you thought, finally, a pop culture reference I'm going to get this morning. Nope. We're not talking about that deliverance. This morning, we're talking about our God as a God of deliverance, who routinely steps in and rescues, delivers his people. And this type of deliverance is from death to life. The scriptures themselves are full of these types of stories Uh, The Bible itself is a book of deliverance. If you go back to the beginning, you'll read stories such as Moses, God using him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea. You keep going, you run into Daniel in the lion's den, him being delivered, not devoured. You keep going into the New Testament, we have Mary and Joseph escaping Herod uh, with little Jesus as Herod's searching out for this new king. They're delivered from his grasp. In each of these instances, it's clear that God goes before his people and delivers them from death to life, certain death. And this morning, we're going to read about another great deliverance, and that's Peter's deliverance in Acts 12 from prison. And how timely it is this morning that we had prison fellowship here with us, and this morning we're reading a text where we see God reaching in even to prisons to deliver people. So as we do, we'll see in this episode that Herod has a wicked plan, but the church prays, God provides, and Peter is delivered. Begin with me now as we read from verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a great light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. 
When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came in to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said to them, tell all these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and spent time there. We thank God for the reading of his word, for what we have been left entrusted to us as Christians in this day and age. In every episode of God's deliverance, we see him delivering a a person or a people group by ensuring that his plans are ultimate over any other earthly power. Peter is imprisoned, the church prays, and God delivers him when all hope was lost. In God's deliverance of Peter, we just read, we're going to see three things. A wicked plan, a praying church, and a saving God. Let's begin by looking at Herod's wicked plan, as the text reveals it to us. And to provide some context to this chapter, in the previous chapter, the church in Antioch is thriving in chapter 11. They're overflowing, they're sharing their goods, they're experiencing the unity in Christ. So the church is thriving in chapter 11, but here in chapter 12, they're enduring persecution. And that's pretty much the flow of the whole of the book of Acts. In a nutshell, the church is doing well. The church is experiencing persecution. Highs and lows. If we were to give our sermon series a subtitle, it might be something like the early church from heyday to mayday and back again. In chapter 11, the church is thriving. And now in chapter 12, she's just trying to survive. Trying to survive under the persecution of Herod, and this isn't Herod Antipas, who was uh, Herod when Christ was crucified. It's not Herod the Great, who was Herod when Christ was born, but here we meet Herod Agrippa I. He's actually the grandson of Herod the Great. He became the main persecutor of the church in Jerusalem after Saul's conversion, and his first major target, as we see in the opening verses, was James son of Zebedee. James was the brother of John, who years earlier had been called by Jesus as disciples from the boat where they were fishing with their father. We see that in Matthew 4. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat with their father and followed him. 
So James is the first disciple from the original 12 to die for their faith. Interestingly, as church history tells us, though, his brother John was the last disciple to die as an old man at the turn of the century. These two inseparable brothers separated for their entire earthly ministry. His brother John would live another 50 years. He would leave the Gospel of John, the Epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the book of Revelation. But James was taken. Some saints bear witness to Christ through their life and others through their death. As Jesus reminded them, the cup that I drink, you also will drink. Not every Christian dies of old age. The early church knew that all too well. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when I preached on the conversion of Saul, I mentioned that though Saul's conversion was miraculous, it didn't end the persecution of the Christians, which we can see clearly in this text, but that the church had to wait another 300 years before Emperor Constantine would come around to provide some relief to the Christians and the persecution that they were experiencing. And there's this great quote from that time by a leader in the church named Jerome. And Jerome said this, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. So Herod didn't realize that his plan was about to backfire. Having successfully pleased the Jews by killing James, he turned to another leader in the early church at Jerusalem, Peter. His plan was to make another example out of Peter by means of public execution. Now, Peter was arrested, as the text says, during this Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a week-long festival that coincides with Passover. And so his trial would have to wait because Herod wanted the Jews to be able to witness this trial, to partake in this trial. And so he had to wait till after their observance of this religious festival. And so to do that, to facilitate that, he puts Peter in prison. In order to take Peter out of the picture, he has to first restrain him. And by that, I mean quite literally with guards chained to him. Peter wasn't going anywhere. In fact, Herod calls for four squads of soldiers. That's four squads of four soldiers. Sixteen soldiers are guarding this one prisoner. This is the maximum security arrangement at the time. They guarded him around the clock in shifts of six hours during the day, three hours during the night, because Herod wanted to make sure that Peter wasn't going anywhere. He puts ten obstacles in his way. Did you catch all those? There was the two chains on his hand, the two soldiers on either ends of those chains, the door to his prison cell. There was two guards outside of that door, the first and second guard on the way to the main gate, and then, of course, that great big iron gate. These ten obstacles keeping Peter restrained. And so we should ask, why was Peter, a preacher, restrained to such a degree He was a preacher, not a crusader. He wasn't a dangerous man, and yet he was treated as the most dangerous of them all. Perhaps it was because Herod was coming to realize that the proclamation of the word of God was a dangerous thing to his empire. 
Though Peter wasn't a dangerous man, the word of God was dangerous in the hands of men of God. And I wonder if in some ways Herod had a higher estimation of the preached word of God than even we do, putting so much attention to it, and yet some of us read our Bible once this past week. Look at the estimation he puts to the word of God. If Peter is going to escape from here, it would truly have to be a miraculous and divine intervention. The king's plan was short-lived because the true king had rendered a different verdict. Herod's plan, as do any plans that oppose God, ultimately fail. They're defeated in Jesus' name because a plan in opposition to God fails. And we're going to take a closer look at that. Uh, But first, let's take notice of what the church is doing in this episode. Because here, we don't see a defeated or a broken church who just lost their brother James. Now they're expecting to lose Peter. Instead, we find a praying church. In verse 5, the text gives us this glimpse into what the church was doing. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They were in earnest prayer. Simple, but powerful. After all, the church couldn't do anything else. They couldn't break Peter out of jail. We just saw all those obstacles they would have had to go through. They couldn't plead with Herod to release their friend, their brother, because he had his mind set on making an example out of Peter. But what they could do was pray. And pray earnestly they did. The church wasn't asking God for a favor. They were asking him for a friend. They were asking God to save their friend by his power to do what only he could do in that situation. You know, sometimes I think we ask God for the strength to do something that only he can do. We ask God to give us the strength that is rightfully his. We put that then on ourselves and we struggle with it when we should be giving it to God and trusting him for it. The church here could have been caught up in a rash of frenzied emotions and decisions, but instead they prayed earnestly for God's will to be done. And how many frustrations, how many mistakes do we make when we could have been saved from them if we had just gone to God in prayer first? Acts chapter 12 teaches us that in this life, we're going to face many uncertainties, many obstacles, many trials, And we can either get lost in them, or we can take them to God in prayer. Prayer provides that direction. Prayer, by definition, is a means of revealing God's plan to us. Prayer is a window into the heart of God. It's a window by which we can see and access His providential will. By providence, I'm referring to God's power to uphold, guide, and care for creation. He upholds everything by his sovereignty. He guides everything by his rule. And he cares for everything because of his great love and mercy. So he is in charge. And if you want to know your Father's heart, if you want to know the will of your Heavenly Father, then pray to him 
each and every day that you might come to know his will. Jonathan Edwards, a famous last Puritan, said, Prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is to life. I'll give you a second to write that one down. That's good. Prayer is like oxygen to the church. Which means a church without prayer is slowly suffocating. It's like the oxygen that fans the flames of faith. My wife and I were at a cottage this past weekend. Uh, thank you to Alan and Betty Legault for letting us stay at their cottage in Honey Harbor. We're there to celebrate our sixth anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> it's like you heard the Wilds is 76 and thought six means nothing. Thank you. I appreciate every one of you for the edification of my marriage. I don't know how I got on that rabbit trail. Oh, fanning, fanning the flames. Well, that would be an inappropriate analogy. Uh, no. Stoking the fire. That's right. We were at the cottage. We were making a fire, and I had to blow on the... Okay. I think this analogy has been lost on you all. Shame on you. Um, focus. Focus up. Every obstacle in this life is an opportunity to pray... To pray for God's will. And we, when we find ourselves in perilous situations, we often turn to God in prayer. When in reality, without prayer, we find ourselves in perilous situations. See what I mean? We, we get that backwards. We use prayer as just a response when it's really offense and defense. And when we find ourselves in the waiting, it's there that we must pray earnestly. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he wrote that as long as we are kept waiting for a mercy, we must continue praying for it. And how could the church give up? How could the church stop praying for their friend? That they couldn't break out, that they couldn't ask for his release, they went to prayer. Many of you will know that last year was a pretty tough year for my family, um, Dad started losing his eyesight fairly early on, and nobody knew why. And then they finally discovered that he had a, a brain tumor that had grown so, so massive that it, it pinched or crushed his optic nerve, and that's why he couldn't see anymore. Um, by the time we got him to the hospital, he was almost completely blind, and so we began praying. As a family, as a church, we were praying. And can I just ask, if you prayed for my dad last year, would you raise your hand? And God delivered, not just in the ways we wanted, by preserving him through that 12-hour surgery, but by preserving even the optic nerve, something the doctors didn't think could happen, so that his eyesight even could return. And now he's back at work, he's driving, he's pointing out all the crazy drivers he sees on the road... It was a miracle that God did, but we got to pray for. That's the most obvious application for us. If we're going to call ourselves the church, then let us be found praying. As much as we may want to write off the early church for their apparent lack of faith when Peter arrives, let's not forget that at least they were found praying. And how often do we miss that most basic but first step? What would it look like for us to be a church found praying if a non-Christian came in the door? 
If Christ returned tomorrow, would he find us praying? We just had our South Africa team up here asking for prayer. What would it look like if each of us prayed for the next two weeks as they're gone for them, for their safety, for their protection, for their deliverance? I would suggest that if we're going to look like a church that's found praying, then it starts with us asking for prayer. It starts with us, as, as these gentlemen just did, asking for prayers to be able to pray alongside one, of, one another. And that's why we put the prayer cards in the seats in front of you, so that each Sunday you have that physical reminder to reach out and write down a prayer, a prayer that you can give to God and a prayer that you can ask for help from your brothers and sisters. And I'll pause because I think I should say that some of you in this room right now are probably struggling with something. We just talked about that, struggling with something that only God can do because you think it's your job. And so maybe you need to grab a prayer card right now and start writing out that prayer request. As you're writing it out, asking for prayer, pray it to God. And then I'd ask that you leave it in an offering or prayer request box on your way out so that we can pray, we can come alongside, we can be a church that's found praying. In any and every circumstance, let us be on our knees before God. That's what the church did here. And that's how God reveals his plan to them by saving Peter from the jaws of death, from death to life. He is indeed a saving God. After seeing Herod's wicked plan, it's pretty clear to see God's plan of salvation. He is in charge, and his providence wins the day. He made that clear by showing that no prison, no plan of an earthly king could stand against his providential will. Herod may have had his plans, but God's are ultimate. And this was such a miraculous deliverance that when the angel appears, Peter thinks he's seeing a vision because the laws of nature were being broken right in front of him. He couldn't believe it. Bright lights don't just shine out of nowhere. Chains just don't fall off your arms. Prison gates don't just fling open. And prison guards Don't just let prisoners come and go as they please. But that's how God delivered Peter. Mind you, the angel had to first wake Peter up because just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was sleeping rather than praying, but that's a different sermon. But he soon arrives at the house of Mary where the church just so happens to be having a prayer meeting. He was united with the church. Now, God clearly didn't communicate this plan to them because when he arrives at the gate, when the girl is sent to uh, open the gate, she recognizes his voice, forgets really quick, runs back in, and they can't believe it's him. They wouldn't open the gate because they didn't even believe that Peter could be there. Isn't it interesting that these massive iron gates of a prison were thrown wide open, but the gate at the home of the Christians remained shut? When they should have been welcoming God's deliverance of Peter, they were caught up in unbelief and shock. Why were they so surprised when the girl told them, he's here? And to make matters worse, what was their response? Girl, you are out of your mind. (laughs) They actually go so far as to call her a maniac. In the Greek, it says maniakos. They call her a maniac because there's no way she is right. 
And then even when they do finally decide to go to the gate, they only do so because they think they're going to see his angel. And why in the world would they think that? It's hard to know the why for that, so I'll just say I think, so take it or leave it, I think that perhaps it was because there was a common Jewish belief, a notion that each individual is assigned a celestial being at birth to guard and protect them, kind of like a guardian angel. So perhaps they thought the angel was at the gate to tell them, to reassure them that the angel would be with Peter in his last moments. Regardless, whatever reason they had for their assumption, they clearly didn't think that Peter would be there in the flesh. And so the question we got to ask this morning is where did all this disbelief come from? Were they praying earnestly for something in verse 5 that they didn't actually believe God could do? Were they praying because they were just going through the motions? They knew they were supposed to pray rather than they believed that God could do it. If they truly believed, surely they would have ran to that gate to greet their brother. Listen, some Christians pray big prayers, but forget they're praying to a big God. Some Christians pray big prayers, but forget they're praying to an even bigger God. He is indeed a saving God. Our prayers matter because as the true king, the outcome is his. Well, there it is. From start to finish, an incredible story of Peter's deliverance. A truly incredible story of deliverance. But it most certainly isn't the greatest story of deliverance, the greatest in human history. There's something deeper going on here. Because Peter's deliverance was only temporary. It was only a temporary escape from death. He got out of jail, good for him, but he still died 20 years later. He may have escaped Herod's sword, but he didn't escape crucifixion under Nero. God's plan was certainly more powerful than Herod's plan. The church's prayers are certainly a guide for us as a church, but there must be something greater, something worth dying for, as James and later Peter did. And here it is. God delivers us not just from death to life, but from eternal death to eternal life. We don't just escape death. We're delivered to eternal life in Christ. There's a young man here with us this morning who experienced God's deliverance in this way just this past week. I got his permission to share this. But he was a young man headed for prison. Last year he turned to drinking to cope with uh, the uncertainties of life. And that led him down a very dark path which ultimately led to him being charged and arrested in front of his family for a DUI. They impounded his truck, they took his license, sent him to jail, and he had to go to trial. Following this incident, or I should say through this incident, the Lord reached into this young man's life and saved him to himself. His life was changed by Christ as his record was rendered clean. But there was still this very real conviction that he was to face, a criminal record that could be applied to his name. And so just this past week, he had his 
judgment day when he went before the judge. And so he reached out to pray. What the early church did right here. He reached out for prayer and earnestly pray we did. We asked God for mercy. We asked God for wisdom. We even asked God for his justice to be rendered according to his will. And throughout all the trial, God answered. First, he gave this young man a new judge the night before who appeared to be more lenient. Then the accounts of the police and the witnesses, stuff that should have come to their mind wasn't there as if their tongues were tied. They'd forgotten their own arguments. And on his judgment day this past week, instead of being sentenced and found guilty, he was acquitted of all of his charges. So he told me as we debriefed, he said this, I wrote it down, he said, I should have been charged, justice would have been for me to be convicted, but God showed me indescribable mercies once again. Yeah, man. But God, who is rich in mercy, not only saved this young man through this incident, paying for his penalty eternally, but even chose to not make him pay these crimes. And since being saved, God has taken away his desire for alcohol. He's brought him into a family of believers, and he certainly has taught him the price of sin, the wages of sin. It still cost him over 15000 to go through this experience, but that is a small price that pales in comparison to the eternal salvation and deliverance that he experienced in Christ Jesus. I want to end with an application here to talk about this eternal deliverance that we have seen and put before us in this this text. Because we can't have a sermon on Acts 12 and end with Peter running around the countryside. There's something much more going on here. Peter's deliverance has some shocking similarities to Christ's resurrection. Did you catch those? Some scholars even call Peter's escape here in Acts 12... Peter's resurrection. Not that he truly died as Christ did on the cross, but that he was delivered from death just as Christ defeated death to deliver you. The grave couldn't hold Christ, and this prison couldn't hold Peter because God's plans are ultimate. But there are many similarities in these two stories. There's this common arrest, the trial that they would have under the Roman ruler at the pleasure of the Jews. There's the timing, both are connected and centered on the Passover. There's divine intervention, the angels coming in the prison and at the tomb. There's guards that are either paid off or killed to save face. There's an account of a woman, or woman being sent as messengers to herald the good news. And then finally, there's a, a doubtful group of Christians who couldn't believe that God did what he said he would do. There is eternal deliverances from death granted to those in Christ. So to be clear, Peter's deliverance is meant to point to Christ's resurrection. Christ defied death by conquering it. Every first century Christian would have recognized that. They would have made that connection, and we would be wise not to miss it here. Because it means that the same God who rescued Peter is the same God who defeated death, who is the same God who can deliver you, who can save you from your sins, delivering you from death to eternal 
life. That's who our God is. I love how Psalm 68 says it. It says it this way, Our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. So Jesus is the Lord. Jesus holds the key. His, his life leads to life everlasting. Man's way leads to death. I think we're reminded of that pretty clearly in this story because the guards having lost Peter are executed. Sixteen guards were killed because Peter escaped. Let that sink in. What a stark contrast. God gave Peter life and Herod took the life of 16 men. Church, choose this day whom you will serve, the king of life or the king of death. There is only one true king whose way leads to life and life eternal. This past month I got to go down to Barry to share uh, my dad's story uh, for share it's something Life 100.3 puts out. They have a segment, Pray with a Pastor. So I got to go down and pray with folks. And part of that is you get to share a testimony or a story of answered prayer. And so I got to share my dad's story on the radio. And as soon as I was done that, I started receiving a bunch of calls from people that were in similar situations. Um, one lady was actually in the car with her mom, driving to the same hospital, St. Mike's in Toronto, for a similar surgery. So we got to pray for God to do what only he could do. But I also got, uh, the next week, the following week, I also got this beautiful card from a lady who struggled after hearing my dad's story because her son, who was in a similar situation, didn't make it and passed. And she was still grieving. Like James and Peter, one was saved, the other killed. It made me all the more thankful for my dad's story, but perplexed as to why her son was taken. Why? And to that I would simply say that I don't, I don't know why. I don't have that answer. I honestly can't tell you why you are suffering right now. What's the greater purpose behind this? In this life, we don't often get the why, and that's hard. We have people here who've lost friends, family, they've lost children, they've lost parents. We're in a town right now that's grieving with Gordon Lightfoot's passing and the memorial uh, visitation happening today. Thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people coming asking why. I don't know why, but what I do know is that the purpose the plans, and even the means are all in God's hands, in his loving hands and in his perfect timing. Some saints bear witness to Christ through their life, others through their death. And our only hope, our only hope as we just sang, is that there is an eternal deliverance. That this world, like the prison in the story, is holding us to our death, but there is deliverance from it in Christ Jesus. God has provided a way of deliverance for you. And our job now is to stay alert, to pray, and to be kept by him until then. Luke already told us that in the first part of Acts, known as the Gospel of Luke. And Luke, he warned, 
But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place, to stand before the Son of Man. Until he returns, we're to stay with Jesus. Because Jesus provided a way, a means of deliverance from death. And I'll tell you, the only way to get through this life is to know where you're going in the next that's the only way we get through. Peter's story here is to remind us of that freedom that we have in Jesus. And no, we may not always experience an escape from this world's wickedness. We will still experience suffering, but he is good. He is in control, and he's working out his kingdom plan. So if you feel easily overpowered by the trials that you face, then stay with Jesus. And you win. I'll tell you, the early church certainly felt small and insignificant against the backdrop of the Roman Empire. But they stayed with Jesus. And they not only survived, they thrived. They grew. It's because we know how the story ends. It is finished. So be encouraged. With Christ, we can say, it is well with my soul. How many people out in the world can say that? It is well with my soul. Despite everything around us, it is well. So don't be impressed by what seems like temporary triumphs over the gospel and culture. Be bold. Be courageous to spread the word of God and leave the outcomes to him. You just stay with Jesus. And may Peter's escape from prison Motivate us that we are no longer chained down by death. We are freed through Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our freedom. We thank you for life everlasting that we can say it is well with my soul because we have an eternal hope. So thank you for the cross. Thank you for the table. No earthly opposition, no matter how powerful, can defeat you. And so if we stay with you, God, we know we win because Christ has won on our behalf. So despite everything, we will say, it is well. Amen. Pastor Rob, would you come with the worship team now and lead us in that hymn?